0: To the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is the agenda with Georgia Tolley
0: on Dubai I 103.8.
1: Hello there and thank you for downloading the Agendas podcast from today, Friday, the 5th. And on the programme today, we took a closer look at the Dubai government's latest plans to double the country's Emirati population in a decade. It was a fascinating story. And we had a fascinating interview with expert Professor Wifag Adnan. She's from New York University Abu Dhabi, and she explained how it all comes down to women. Meanwhile, a sample study has found that more than half of children are travelling unrestrained in cars in Dubai. Road safety expert Phil Clark joined us to discuss how motorists' behaviour can be changed. As global aid agencies say they've received less than half the funding that they need, we discussed crisis fatigue and the impact that it's having on donations. That was with Claire Dalton from The Red Cross. And we also continued our forecasting series for 2024. Today, we looked at what the next 12 months holds for the health sector with David Hadley, who is CEO of NMC Healthcare. And we were also joined by two of the stars from the BBC reality show, Buy hustle. Now that follows the cast of real estate agents as they work in the Emirates' hugely competitive property market. We chatted to them about exactly what it's like to work in the property market and got a bit of a forecast for 2024 from them as well. And also, our big hot debate, our big hot topic, our big hot controversy. For Friday uh, was all centered around pineapple on pizzas. Yep, that's because a renowned Italian pizza maestro has put pineapple on the pizzas on his menu. We were furious and so was UAE F&B director Luigi Vespero. You definitely won't want to miss his reaction to that menu change. Plus, Robbie Greenfield brought us up to date with all the latest sporting headlines, including a huge amount of controversy that is still brewing over the introduction of VAR. Overnight, the Dubai government has outlined an ambitious social welfare strategy, which is basically focused on doubling the number of Emirati families in Dubai within A decade. Now, the plan also includes improvements to housing, education, and healthcare. It has a massive budget of 208 billion dirhams over the next 10 years the general gist is that Emiratis are going to get uh, benefits like land plots uh, and loans. uh, And it's all part of a social agenda that plans to turn Dubai into one of the world's top three cities in terms of standard of living. But they've also looked at life expectancy and education, and, and they want those two elements to also rank among the world's top 10. So, Big plans, very ambitious, and and a lot to unpick there. Uh, If you've been listening to The Business Breakfast already this morning, you'll have heard me talk about it a bit on that show. I think it's a really interesting policy. I think it's a lot more than just an announcement of a sort of cash injection for the Emirati population. So to discuss the plans a little earlier, I spoke to Professor Wifag Adnan from New York University Abu Dhabi. She specializes in labor and development economics there. And she told me how she viewed this policy.
2: So the way I think about this is the policy wants ambitious and highly educated young people to think, I think, more positively about marriage and children. And I think the issue is that many people think that there's a trade-off, right? So to establish yourself as an educated person with a high-profile career, you need to put marriage marriage off for as long as possible and that's really necessary especially now with AI and even before AI with globalization you know you need to upskill you need to remain competitive in the labor market this is just something you need to do as an educated person who's very ambitious you just need to put marriage off as as much as possible and so the logic is not just that but even more so this is the only successful path this is the only way you're going to be able to build a family because you know, life is just so expensive, daycares are expensive, and education and healthcare, and everything is just so expensive. So this is not just something you should do, but this is probably the only thing you can do to build a family. Another side is, well, yeah, but you know, you could also just have a family. And then just make major sacrifices in your career. It's okay to take a few setbacks, and then this is maybe gonna lead you to have a, a slightly less fulfilling life. But that's you know that's okay. You don't have to live the lavish lifestyle. And so I think that. The idea is that when the government addresses the most pressing concerns, education, maybe early childhood education as well, healthcare, housing, all these things that you mentioned, then maybe young Emirati citizens can strive for both. And then this trade-off that exists can just kind of diminish. I
1: totally understand what you're saying, because I think that if you look at most families, the reason why they choose not to have lots of children is because ultimately children are expensive. Exactly.
2: I I mean, the the research is still very much ongoing on this, but recent research seems to show that people are actually quite responsive to policies that facilitate work-life balance, even more so than policies that just, you know, give you what is now called the baby bonus, right? Which are these cash transfers um, that many countries in the developed world are doing.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, of course, The UAE isn't the only country trying to increase its national population. You know, we've seen it, for example, over in Asia, less so in in China. Obviously, they went the other way at one stage. But obviously, in, in Korea and Japan, there are concerns that the population there is going to shrink dramatically because women just aren't having as many
2: children. Right. And this is the the tug of war, right, that we have when we discuss economic development. We we always hail these countries, right, like Singapore and South Korea and Japan and many European countries is driving economic development, teaching us a lot about economic development. But what we witness, right, is that as economic development increases and especially as women make substantial gains in educational attainment, What we observe following that is that the age of first marriage declines and fertility declines. We see this especially in the most educated segments of those societies. So in the U.S., for example, you always see declining fertility rates, but they're declining faster and they're even starting at at a lower point than in non-educated segments. And this here we're talking about college educated, of course. So these trends have always had demographers very worried. Uh, because you know, having an aging population raises a lot of concerns about the need to secure social security and and pensions, and also just having a young and productive workforce to provide goods and services for an economy. And people seem to understand these macro issues. It's 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 actually quite interesting. But interestingly enough, people don't easily change their views or their behavior. (laughs) So as we economists like to say, people respond to incentives, right? And so your policy is as good as the incentives that you put out there. And so this policy is saying, well, okay, we're gonna take a series of measures that will hopefully incentivize people to reconsider their views on family, fertility, and marriage. I think the message they're trying to send is something along the lines of, you know, if we strengthen the nuclear family and if we facilitate work-life balance, then, you know, this is something that's patriotic, but it's, you know, it's also good for the economy. It makes us more stable and more secure.
1: Ultimately, I mean, I was I was thinking about this policy earlier this morning and. I realized that on one level, you know, if the government's asking women to have lots more babies, then mm. that could feel like an extra pressure because women are also being encouraged in this country to get tertiary education, go to university and go on to become impressive career women as well. And and now they've got to have lots of babies. And then I thought about it a little bit more. And I thought, actually, you don't have to have loads more babies. You could just have maybe one or two. And if the support was there... <laughs> Uh, if the support was there, then maybe you would. Like, for example, I think I would have had a third child if someone had told me that the child care was going to be paid for, that my health care was going to be tip top, um, that they were going to help me buy a bigger house. A- and all of a sudden, you know, a-, a big family is a lovely thing to have. A- and so I-, I can see it from both sides of you. On one side, I'm a bit like, my goodness, that's quite a lot of pressure on women. And on the other side, I'm like, actually, if the government's going to facilitate you having a bigger family,
2: then that's kind of lovely. I I completely agree with that. Especially your latter point is interesting because I, I can't remember the year, but I remember a few years ago, I saw an article in The Economist and they were talking about how in most countries, people actually regret not having had more children. And I thought that was absolutely uh, fascinating and and super important because, you know, you always think, oh, well, you know, this is just our culture. You know, yeah, at least from my perspective, I'm always thinking, well, you know, as Arabs, you know, we were always told that we should have bigger families and, and have a lot of children. And this just makes the family better. But it actually turns out that it's not a cultural issue. Like most people do wish they had bigger families. And the reason that they don't is usually economic reasons, right? Like reasons that policymakers could potentially address. And, you know, I think this issue with women, right, is particularly important. So at a very macro level, when you think of things on the macro level, there's actually a U-shaped relationship between female labor force participation and economic development. And so... Countries that are very poor or are at early stages of economic development, they experience high rates of female labor force participation. And that's because they work out of necessity or they seek jobs out of necessity. And women at the high end of economic development are much more likely to participate in the labor force. But that's because they're seeking high wage opportunities, which are usually available in rich countries. And it's that middle ground where women don't really see the incentive to to seek formal employment but also don't need to work out of necessity especially if their husbands are in pretty good positions then that's when you see the lowest female labor force participation so i think the idea behind the policy is trying to to keep moving the country right into this high level of economic development so that women continually have an incentive to work but then there's also like you said this this pressure And I think it's going to all come down to the details. For example, flexible schedules in the labor market, remote work, freelancing licenses have been hailed as an absolutely great move in the past couple of years. All of these different things are going to be especially important for women because policy instruments that can create more flexibility in the labor market can allow women to contribute more.
1: Interesting stuff, hey? I'd love to get your comments on that interview with Professor Wifag Adnan. She's from New York University, Abu Dhabi, where she specialises in labour and development economics.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Now, we're going to take a look at a story about keeping children safe on the programme now. And that is because a new study shows that more than half of children travelling in cars in Dubai are not safely secured. It was a bit of a sample study. Normally, We don't like a study unless it's, you know, looked at hundreds of thousands of people. This one actually only looked at 2,000 vehicles in the Emirate. They were monitored by Monash University in Australia, or at least researchers from that university. And they had the support of the Roads and Transport Authority here. And their researchers discovered that 51.7% of children in cars were unrestrained, while 8.3% were held unrestrained on an adult's lap. Now, that is despite it being illegal. Since 2017, it's been illegal in this country for children not to be buckled up. Actually, in some cases, they actually have to be buckled up in special seats. Joining me to discuss why... Behaviour is taking so long to change. Because if we're in 2020, that's six years. Um, is uh, Phil Clark. He's a road safety expert. He's director of road safety and enforcement, in fact, at 4E Road Safety and Transport Consultants. He joins me very kindly on Teams. Phil, good to hear from you. Uh, a, a small sample study, but pretty depressing results, nevertheless.
3: Yes, yeah, quite frightening, really. Um... Yeah. I'm not really surprised, to be honest with you. I think uh, we have such a diverse society in uh, Dubai, and it's an ever-changing, it's like a revolving door. People are coming in and people are, are going. But in the West, we were subjected to decades of constant road safety campaigns, awareness campaigns, TV adverts, radio commercials, posters on buses. It was It was relentless for decades. So in the West, I think we're we're very conscious of the risks and the consequences of having children, well, anybody unrestrained in vehicles, but especially children. Um, and so, but I don't think that's been the case in the Middle East and Asia. Um, so I think what you've got is uh, some of it is just people not being aware of those risks and consequences. Um, some of it is... You know, we hear the excuses about, oh, my child doesn't want to be strapped in. Um, And as a parent of three children, I accept the fact that sometimes if they're having a tantrum, it can be very tempting to say, okay, you know, let's just take the easy option. Don't bother. Um, But I think there is a parental responsibility to cherish your children sufficiently to want to protect them from harm and do everything you can to do that, including putting them in a Baby seat or a child car seat or booster seat, whatever is appropriate for the age. I think that's really the problem here. It's a lack of awareness. But the problem with allowing children to get away with a tantrum and then saying, oh, okay, that's the easy way, I'll just let them do it, is that they're going to do that every time because they know that by doing that, they're not going to be forced to sit in the seat.
1: What are the implications of a child being involved in an accident and being unrestrained? I mean, what about if the adult is wearing a a seatbelt and they're holding the the child? You know, is there, doesn't that keep them safe?
3: No, I mean, let's deal with the the two issues, really. The first is if you have anybody unrestrained in a vehicle, but obviously we're we're talking uh, primarily about children here, in the event of a collision, uh, they're going to be thrown around inside that vehicle and they're going to be thrown into whatever is in front of them or you know the, the side of them depending on the nature of the impact including other people so they're, they're going to collide with hard seats doors other people's heads uh the, the the consequences are horrendous uh even at relatively low speeds and and anybody uh listening to us now who's tried the the seatbelt sled that i know road safety uae take around sometimes you'll see that at a low speed, uh, people are thrown forward at at quite a rate. It's quite a jolt. That brings us on to the child sitting on the lap. An adult cannot hold that child safely because they simply aren't going to be strong enough in the event of a collision to hang on to that child. And worse still, if they move forward, they're going to crush the child against whatever is in front of them. So maybe a dashboard or maybe another seat, something like that. So uh, it's just, it's just daft, it really is daft for people to think that they can hang on to a child and hold them safely in a car because the forces acting on that vehicle under impact will be just far too extreme.
1: So. I've had experience of this. My, the car I've got now uh, won't let me move further than about eight metres without beeping at me insanely on the seatbelt front, which is a huge relief in many ways because I'm really militant with the kids about putting their seatbelts on. But we were driving through my compound, so we'd been driving for about 20 seconds, and I came round the corner. I'd presumed that my kids had put their belts on because I say, put your belt on as soon as I get in the car. And they do, for the most part, do that. But this time, my youngest had not. And I had to... I must have been travelling at, like, five kilometres an hour, literally, coming around the corner in the compound. And somebody came shooting round the other way, and I had to do an emergency stop. And my youngest, I mean, he really banged his head on the seat in front of me. I mean, really banged it, to the point where I thought I might have to take him to hospital. And I'd been going five kilometres an hour in my compound. And, I mean... It was horrible for him. But my goodness me, it was a lesson for those kids. Um, Needless (laughs) to say, needless to say, the seatbelt, a hard lesson, not one I would have wanted him to have. And I was really worried about concussion and things afterwards. But, you know, he puts his seatbelt on every time now. and, And, you know, and he tells his friends because obviously we get other kids in the car. So sometimes it does take that short, short sharp shock, but but uh, you know we were lucky. Uh, you know, if I'd been going ten, then you know maybe he would have got whiplash and and had to go to hospital with, with concussion. How can? How can people be persuaded? How can you change behaviour? Because it needs to be changed right now. You know, every day you've got children. I mean, I see, you see we see ridiculous things. You know, down Jamira Beach Road, you see kids out of sunroofs. You see everything. Unless now, in the eight years I've been, nine years I've been here. But you do see, see crazy things. You know, what's needed? What will change behaviour?
3: Well, I've said this so many times on other topics. I think the first thing is you have to make people aware of these consequences of, of not complying with the law and not restraining children. Uh, it's, you know, it's about safety. The law doesn't exist because somebody felt they just needed to write a law. It exists because they're trying to make traveling uh, safer and the roads safer. But I think there needs to be proper visual uh, awareness campaigns. I'm not talking about gory, blood and gore kind of uh, adverts and things, because I think we know that actually those are uh, sort of not as effective as people thought they were. But there are plenty of ways of doing visual uh, representations of what happens in the course of uh, of a collision to people inside a vehicle. Um, And I think that there has to be a a much more concerted effort to raise the awareness of people so that they understand, uh, that's the first thing, that they understand what the consequences could be. The second thing is parents have to just step up Uh, and accept parental responsibility. And if that means that you make your child doing something that they don't want to do in order to make them safer and to comply with the law, then so be it. And this easy option of, of, well, my child doesn't want to do it or I'm only driving a short distance or I'm a safe driver, I won't be involved in an accident. It's all a load of old rubbish. Um, At the end of the day, parents have a responsibility to look after their children and keep them as safe as possible. Um, and as you rightly say, you know, when when your children travel in other people's cars, um, you know, it's what happens in those as well, because everybody has got that responsibility as a driver to make sure that the people in the in the car are properly restrained.
1: Yeah, it's a big it's a big concern of mine, oddly enough, uh, the whole school run business and whether or not kids are, are nicely, are nicely shut in when they go on. I mean, I, I have. You, if I can't be sure mine aren't buckled in, then then to be honest, I I don't send them home with other people. I, I, I think my father was a salesman when I was growing up. So he traveled around the United Kingdom a huge amount. As he, and as a consequence, he was on the motorways a lot and he saw a lot of accidents. And as a consequence, I have very much been brought up in a family uh, that knows that accidents, you know, don't just you know sometimes happen but but can often happen and therefore you do need to be very careful indeed Phil Clark road safety expert uh, from 4E road safety and transport consultants thank you as ever for your time lots of people getting in touch on this guy thank you for your message he says the only way to change this is extremely large fines for everybody and cars being impounded we definitely have enough cameras in the UAE to spot the offenders uh, and we do need to just start charging people Warren says, Hi, two days ago, I saw a guy open the front door passenger for his wife and infant. They then drove away with the child on the mother's lap. It is beyond crazy that someone would think that this is safest for their child. Tough laws and fines are the only things that would stop this.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Welcome back to The Agenda, and it's fair to say there's nothing we like more than a little bit of controversy to liven up a Friday show, and it doesn't get much more serious than this. Where do you stand on pineapple on pizza? I know it's a huge question, huge question. I have more text on this topic than anything else all week, uh, and it is a big question that the renowned Italian pizza maestro, Gino Sorbio, has answered. He's basically the most famous pizza maker in the world and he has added a pineapple pizza to the menu of his acclaimed neapolitan restaurant needless to say the humble pie has created a storm in his native city where the purists have described the dish as heresy So why is pineapple on pizza such a divisive topic? Well, to find out, I'm delighted to say I'm joined now in the studio by chef Luigi Vespero, who is head of food and beverage at the Gargash Group, which owns, among others, the very lovely Italian restaurant, the Artisan and DIFC. Now, Luigi, am I being um, presumptive to say that are you Italian?
4: I am Napolitan. You're I'm not, Napo- oh, I am wow. Napolitan. I'm not Italian. I'm Napolitan.
1: The home of exactly, the pizza. Exactly. And so how are you feeling about the uh, the pineapple pizza? Does the artisan, for example, have it on their menu?
4: Oh, Absolutely not. And, and uh, you know, I think there will be a few uh, people looking for a job if they were doing that.
1: Oh, my goodness, really? <laughs>
4: no. You feel <laughs> that? No, no,
1: but do you feel that passionately? What well, I mean, what is wrong with pineapple on a pizza? No, look,
4: I think I, I, I've seen, like, uh, many people around the world have seen the post, right? Yeah. So there is two sides of me here. There is the, you know, the right-hand side, the one far away from the heart who say, you know, from a marketing prospect, brilliant. You yeah. know, the guy got attention, hundred yeah. percent, right? All over the world. All over the world. Yeah. So, you know, he wanted some attention. Here you go. Now there is the side close to my heart that, uh, and is the one that you know gets me a little bit Hat boiling. Up. You know, I'm like, Kosafai, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? <laughs> you know, haram, man, haram. Pineapple <laughs> does not belong on pizza.
1: Why why not? I mean uh, to play devil's advocate, it it tastes sweet, it adds a different texture. You know, you've got the crunch of the the dough, you've got the smoothness of the cheese, you've got the juiciness of the pineapple.
4: Certain things are not there to be changed. <laughs> they have to stay the way they are. Pineapple does not belong on pizza in my very Humble, Napolitan opinion.
1: How about snails? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the most extraordinary text uh, I mean, message we've had all day. Yeah. That is a first. Yeah,
4: that's a first. Um,
1: what should a pizza have to make it perfect? The
4: simplest of them all, right? Uh-huh. A good tomato pulp, a very good uh, you know, mozzarella. Buffalo mozzarella will be even better. Lots of parmesan, few leaves of basil, drips of olive oil. And here you go. Just like Mama used to make, you know.
1: What about these um, Bianca pizzas? Because what's so interesting is that the chef has taken away the tomato and mm. it's actually, it, it, it's a it's a white pizza.
4: Yeah, that is also a classic, okay. actually. You know, like, I mean, the one I just described is the classic margarita, right? But that's also a classic. And in fact, it's uh, my favourite ever pizza. You know, whenever I go and I, I try to ask, ask the chefs, can you make this pizza? It's Bianca, right? with uh, smoked mozzarella so like uh, you know provola we call it yeah. it's like smoked mozzarella buffalo mozzarella raw cherry tomato okay. right and same uh, you know uh, basil olive oil baked in the oven and it's just delightful
1: It's getting very close to lunch for this conversation, isn't it? I mean, we've got got another hour and a half really before you can conceivably eat lunch. Uh, Okay, so as far as people who are looking out to try something new, which is obviously what this wonderful chef uh, in Italy is trying to encourage people to do, Luigi Vespero. Oh, no, that's you. Uh, Gino Sorbillo. Sorry, I'm sort of changing script. So Gino Sorbillo is clearly trying to encourage us to try something new. If someone was to try, you know, not pineapple, but something unusual from a pizza perspective, what would you recommend for, for a change in toppings? A change, you know, a change is as good as a rest.
4: Yeah, no, sure. I think I think it's, it's very good, always good to experience, you know, and, and, and experiment new things, right? But I would stick to flavour that would match, you know, something on the line of, uh, you know, for example, at The Artisan, we do a beautiful pizza, which is Bianca, yeah. right? Uh, with uh, like a courgette pesto, and a beautiful, like very delightful uh, prawns tartare on top of it. We Weird. put it raw. At the
1: end. Oh, I'm not sure.
4: No, you gotta oh, try re- it. Oh, really? You gotta try it. You oh my goodness,
1: it. that sounds like snails.
4: Pizza doesn't need a pineapple, doesn't need those snails to be good. But you know, you put a beautiful raw, delicate fish on it. Once it comes out of the oven, that you know, it, 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 it warms just just enough from the heat of the of the dough of the base, and it's mwah.
5: Beautiful. Come well, and try
1: it. You learn something every single day. That is, that is very interesting indeed. Luigi, thank you so <laughs> much for coming into the studio. I really appreciate 100. it. I'm, thank I'm you. enjoying your outrage. Everyone is enjoying your outrage. Lots of people getting in touch, <laughs> including uh, this person who's just said, how about Nutella on a pizza? I touched in Italy for a couple of years. It was served by my local pizza shop in Milan. Yeah. That is from Guy. Is that okay?
4: It, they, 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 you know, some people do that. It's... Uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's Nutella on toast, right? It's bread and Nutella. I suppose it That's is. That's fine. It's yeah. toast. That's all right. Yeah. For Just don't put pineapple. Just <laughs> don't put pineapple. <laughs>
1: We've got uh, a really interesting hour coming up, looking at a whole load of different topics. And I'm sure that anyone listening to this radio station will be fully aware of all the the catastrophic wars and and the natural disasters that have been affecting record numbers of people in our region and, of course, around the rest of the world over the last 12 months. And that is one of the reasons that global aid agencies now say that they are facing a massive funding gap. Uh, Just to give you an example, last year the United Nations appealed for a record $51.5 billion. They said they needed that to help 339 million people. And to date, they've received just 38.6% of that total. And they say that the need is only increasing. Meanwhile, you've got another problem, which is that charitable donations have dropped globally last year for the very first time in recorded history, which is really weird if you think about it because... Never has there been more sort of declared need. Never has there been more coverage of all the disasters going on around the world. And it's just so odd that that at the same time charitable donations have gone down. So is it compassion fatigue? Is it a sign of a system that needs an entire Overhaul. Let's discuss this in some detail. I'm joined in the studio now by Claire Dalton. She's head of delegation in the UAE for the Red Cross and she's joined me in the studio. Happy New Year, Claire. Welcome to the studio. Lovely to have you with us.
6: Thank you. Happy New Year and thank you for having me.
1: Pleasure indeed. I mean, how challenging is that international aid picture right now? Obviously, I've just spoken about the United Nations. How about for you guys at the Red Cross?
6: Well, it's certainly challenging. And indeed, you know, the needs are huge. Right now, there's more than 100 armed conflicts taking place across the world some of these we know a lot about some are much smaller you know dare I say forgotten uh, so the picture is difficult however I'd say there are always challenges you know there have been huge humanitarian needs for as many years as I've been working in the sector and of course in some senses are the resources ever going to be enough and therefore what do we need to perhaps do differently to make the most of the resources that we do have.
1: There's sort of two different types of donations, aren't there? There's the big government sums, but then you've also got individuals who maybe subscribe or donate monthly or, you know, do something every year, perhaps around the Ramadan or Christmas time of the year. How much of your donations come from those individuals? What's the percentage?
6: Well, for the International Red Cross, actually most of our donation comes from governments. okay, And that's been traditionally the case. Uh, however, of course, you know, as you say, individuals are incredibly generous in many different countries. And I think when they see causes that feel close to their heart, they're also usually inspired to give. And I think we see different trends about what causes perhaps attract and inspire people to give. Uh, For my organisation, the International Red Cross, because we rely a lot on governments, it's also important for us to diversify that base of government support. You know, there's been We so-called traditional government donors who give a lot to humanitarian organisations. But I think in our work and in the way we collaborate, we need to do more to encourage all kinds of governments to also step up and help us meet the challenge.
1: Just focusing on those public donations for one more sort of question, because I'm really interested to hear that those donations are falling despite... I mean, literally on the news channels, it's wall to wall disasters. You know, I I mean, it's it's horrifying. It's depressing. Why do you think we've seen that reduction in personal donations, personal philanthropy?
6: Well, I'd also be interested to know a bit more behind the statistics. I think we always have to be clear on the data. Sometimes it means that perhaps people are giving less to well-known, big organisations or causes. And maybe they're giving more to local or initiatives that, feel as I said before closer to their heart so I'd like to know more about the statistics I mean I think it's hard to speculate on why Mm. that might be the case and I feel you've got to look across the world maybe some countries are still incredibly generous the people and maybe others yes people are more worried about what's going on at home you know I think you see different age trends and you know I'd rather know a little bit more about what's behind those statistics however I would say I think if you know, we're a humanitarian organisation. We need to be able to inspire people with our work, uh, so that they feel comfortable to give us, you know, literally their own money. And I think that's a lot to do with trust. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's less trust in the bigger system. People aren't sure the money they give is going to go uh, to where it's needed most. And so I think that's our job as organisations to make sure we're clear about how and why we spend and that we reassure the public or the you know, the generous people who are giving us money uh, about how that money is, is spent.
1: With the problems just increasing, the, the wars proliferating and, and, and no sort of end in sight for many of the, of the conflicts and also with climate change rearing its ugly head and, and a promise of potential mass migration and therefore more refugees, you know, more conflicts again potentially. Do you think the current structure of aid giving that we have is up to the challenge that it's going to face in the coming decades?
6: Well, I think that's a very important question because obviously we do have less and we still need to do more with that less. So in a way, yes, we have to do things differently. And as you you know, rightly outline, all these difficult challenges, they're not going away. You know, Conflicts often last 30, 40 years. A lot of the places we work, those conflicts have been going on for decades. So I think we have to look at how we work. We need to collaborate better with both local institutions and organisations and look at ways that we meet needs according to our added value. So we're going to have less, you know, maybe as international humanitarian organizations, we do a little bit less. Maybe we fine tune better what the value is we can bring to people. Maybe local and smaller organizations can step up and do more and also access some of these resources. So to me, I think we have to accept that, yeah, there may be less. Mm -hmm. And we have to be smart about how we work, what we do differently And which needs we tackle, because obviously humanitarian aid is a very small part of the international kind of foreign aid or development budget. And so I think, you know, as humanitarian organizations, we have to do our part. However, you know, other institutions, be that development, finance, they have to step up, too. And, you know, I'm a big... And I have optimism when you think if there can be changes in the global financial sector, if philanthropy becomes more strategic, all of these things can help mitigate some of these challenges. Because I don't think, unfortunately, the conflicts are going away. As you say, climate increasing pressure on vulnerable communities and countries and equally, yes, refugees, migration, all of these issues are here for the moment So I think we should put our collective intelligence to finding ways to do better with less.
1: If uh, someone's listening to this and they think, well, you know, it sort of pricked somebody's conscience, for example, it certainly pricked my conscience, a a sort of realisation that maybe I haven't given very much in the last six months or so. How do you choose a charity? Perhaps you want to to give to a more uh, a, a well-known local charity rather than a big what what's better? you know it's so hard to know. Should you give to a big organization like the Red Cross that you can trust that you know they're operating in you know really war-torn difficult areas and they maybe have access that other people don't have? Um, or should you be trying to go with a more local organization where there's less but then there's the risk of less oversight?
6: I mean, again, very good questions. I mean, I feel trust is the key element here. I mean, we're in the UAE. Actually, in the UAE, you know, you have to be a registered charity and the government is careful to make sure those charities are, you know, do what they say they do. So if you're giving here, in a sense, you know, you can trust these organisations will do what they say on the box. Um, I think it's, you know, it's very personal and often it's what is close to your heart. I feel the advantage with bigger humanitarian organisations is, you know, these are professional aid organisations and they will have hopefully assessed the needs very carefully. And then your money is spent on what is actually needed. Mm. Sometimes the challenge is we look at these terrible situations, we really want to help. And then the things we offer perhaps aren't that necessary at that moment you know we see that a lot in in difficult situations you know there's lots of blankets or there's lots of one thing that people have generously given however maybe that's not exactly what's needed at that moment Mm. so I think the other important thing is obviously listening to the people themselves in terms of what are their needs and finding ways to meet that I think there's been really interesting developments in the last few years online giving you know ways that people can fundraise directly for what they need however yeah it has to be kind of trusted and has to be accountability because if I'm giving my money of course as generous as you may be you want to know that it is being spent yeah on on the need and I feel there are ways that people can educate and inform themselves about that and indeed I think it's a very personal choice maybe you feel you know particularly for people affected by the climate crisis or maybe it's about children or women and I think you know good thing is you can find all these different organizations and from the little to the large it all makes a difference.
1: Claire, always lovely to have you join us on the agenda. Thank you so much for your time. You've just been listening to the voice of Claire Dalton, who is head of delegation in the UAE for the Red Cross. And along those lines, I'd be very interested to to hear from you. Sorry, thanks, Claire. I should say thank yeah, you. thank you. I go straight into my, like, <laughs> sending your messages. Um, because I'd love, actually, I genuinely would love to get everyone's reaction to the conversation we've just had. You know, who do you give to? How do you choose who to give to? And... Do you have any sort of sense of crisis fatigue? Do you, do you think that might be impacting on the amount you give from a philanthropic point of view? You're
0: listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Welcome back to The Agenda. And yes, we are continuing our conversation now about what we should expect from 2024 it's crystal ball time it's our forecasting section that we've done all this week very tempted to carry it on into next week because it's been so interesting Uh, but today we're looking at the next 12 months what they have in store for the healthcare sector and joining me now in the studio is david hadley he's the ceo of nmc healthcare happy new year david thanks for coming in good to see you
5: Happy New Year to you too, Georgia, and the team. Yeah. Uh, all the best for t- good 2024.
1: Yes, indeed, a happy and healthy one. Exactly. As a CEO of a, of a huge healthcare <laughs> conglomeration, I suppose that's what we're, we're aiming for today. Okay, now let's talk about the trends for the next 12 months. Um, first of all, let's look back on 2023, which I think is fair to say um, there was a watershed moment when it came to the treatment of obesity, wasn't there, with these amazing drugs. Are you expecting that to continue?
5: Absolutely, I think last year when uh, you know it first came on scene, the glutides that people were taking, and suddenly they were losing twenty pounds, fifty pounds. I mean, I've got friends who've lost serious weight with the, uh, by taking yeah, these drugs. Yeah, me too. It uh, it really made a major impact. It even affected share prices in the U.S. of big companies that were selling crisps and coca-cola etc cetera, etc cetera. not not to name any any brands i suppose but um yeah it made a big impact on on on, on people's lives and i think that will continue uh, into 2024 one of the trends that i think we will see is is combining that with with mental awareness mental health uh, and the whole preventative side of healthcare. i think they're going to see a huge shift towards this uh, by all healthcare providers in in 2024 and and the shift has started last year and it will continue
1: I guess you might need fewer doctors to treat diabetes uh, in some ways. I mean, as the head of a a major healthcare organisation, do you, I suppose you have to look at what type of doctors you're going to be hiring in the future?
5: Yeah, I'm not sure it's it's, uh, made such an impact that we will need less doctors for diabetes just yet. That is still very prevalent in the UAE. And obviously, there's a lot of Uh, work towards reducing the prevalence of diabetes in the country, but uh, in the future, let's hope that we can um, reduce the the need for diabetic doctors in the sense that we're able to cure that disease. Um, But yeah, I think that we, as healthcare trends change, we constantly look at the market and look at what type of specialities we'll need going forward, such as preventative care doctors, personalized medicine, uh, doctors that focus on mental health, etc., which is, as I said, a trend that we're certainly seeing in this market.
1: Let's talk about uh, sort of curing diseases because we're certainly seeing the most extraordinary progress in the development of medicines, aren't we?
5: Yes, absolutely. And I think you know the mRNA technology that was became widely known during the COVID pandemic. um, The use of mRNA technology into uh, personalised medicine, for example, you know, looking at uh, the genome and how we can uh, alter. Uh, um, you know, the gene and and see how we can impact healthcare going forward preventatively is is going to continue. So we will see more developments in this regard. There's probably more watershed moments that that we will see in the future. I don't know which or what, but uh, we will certainly see more developments in this regard for sure.
1: It must feel like quite an exciting sector, particularly with the advent of artificial intelligence and how that's being used to develop new drugs far more quickly than they used to be developed. Do you think we could see any breakthroughs in the treatment of any particular diseases? I've seen lots of headlines recently about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's,
5: for example. Um, It's very difficult to predict, but there's obviously a lot of literature around... uh, projects that are showing good progress with things like mental health you know with alzheimer's parkinson's etc uh cancer there's uh, a lot of research on 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 cancer technologies that are coming in and treatment plans so it's difficult to say what will come into into play in the next year obviously there's a lot of approvals that need to happen fda approvals local regulatory approvals they need to prove that this there's no side effects to these uh, uh, um treatment plans but um the 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 progress is great i think if you're in healthcare, it's certainly developing and changing and always has done and we will see further changes in the future for sure for the better of of everyone's health
1: a need to be very agile i can imagine in the in this sector Uh, david hadley as always thank you so much for joining us in the studio really interesting stuff great to get your forecast uh, for 2024 A, a real pleasure happy new year
5: Thank you. And to you and the team, too. Brilliant. Have a fantastic 2024.
1: Yeah, this is David Hadley, CEO of NMC Healthcare.
5: You're listening to the UAE's
0: number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Right, let's take a look now at a topic uh, basically making headlines around the world because it's a Dubai reality TV show uh, and they've actually got their third season commissioned it is the BBC's Dubai Hustle. Have a listen to this.
7: Half a million pounds at stake here. She could ruin the whole thing.
1: I have a really exclusive penthouse coming soon.
7: That's
8: my client Mr Hamid. Not selling that penthouse, that's a problem. We'll see. That's your buyer then, yeah? That's my buyer. And can not be taking him as that buyer if Eddie's working on the panel I only
6: if it sells, so that's my job to be able to sell By it. By
9: the rules, he's got him tagged in that area. What does Natasha think she's doing? We're all supposed to be in the same team. She could jeopardise everything my mates worked hard for. I'm not having that.
1: Yeah, well, as you can hear... Uh you know passions running high it's a property show basically it follows the lives of several estate agents who are working for house and house as they navigate the market as they sort of sell properties for for their clients or as they encourage others to buy them and i am delighted to say i'm joined now in the studio by two of the stars of the show i've got jake matthews hubbard and jordan zakaria guys happy new year thank you so much for coming into the studio lovely to have you with us Hello, hello.
7: (laughs) Thanks for having us. Well,
1: what's really lovely about about this is actually, Jake, you and I have met several times now because, as we mentioned, this is season three, so... The show has been something of a success, hasn't it?
7: And to be fair, you said if we get a season three or four, you'll never come back here, Jake. And look, we're here again. I, know. I, <laughs> I didn't forget about you, Georgia.
1: I said you'd get too famous and you wouldn't come and talk to mere mortals. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, here you are. And, and I have to say, it's really exciting to see you here because not only was it a, a new TV exp, you know, adventure for you, but it was a brand new career. You'd never actually been an estate agent, had you?
7: Yeah, correct. So I worked in London at Deloitte, I was doing mergers and acquisitions and then COVID came along, decided to completely change my career and entered the buy real estate as well. So
8: yeah, complete transition. N- never done before, similar to Jordan as well. No, never done real estate before. Again, completely changed it. Was so, working as a consultant in London and then, yeah,
1: And then my you came over. So Jordan, you're new, but you were new last season, weren't you, in season two? I or-
8: wasn't in season two. Oh my goodness, so, so this is your
1: first season?
8: First debut season, Yeah.
1: And what's really interesting about the program is that it follows the relationships between you guys, not just you guys, but all the estate agents. But but what's interesting, Jake, is that you started off as a duo, didn't you, with another mate?
7: Mm. Indeed, I, have yeah. Have you
1: broken up?
7: No, <laughs> no, still going strong. So okay. the, the duo is now a trio and it's, it's a nice little come together because jordan and adam knew each other from school so adam introduced me to jordan in london and as soon as we arrived day one adam and i was always saying jordan has to come out he needs to come out i think yeah. it's fair
8: to say he was a bit apprehensive bit concerned yeah definitely no i was definitely apprehensive i was meant to come originally with you two anyway as you know but personal things held me back and then yeah you two were messaging me once every day come to the buyer <laughs> come to the buyer so but yeah Great. Okay, hear.
1: so for people who haven't seen the series, uh, obviously it's called Dubai Hustle. What actually happens, you know, because it's a fly in the wall series, isn't it? So, so Jake, what what do you what do you see when you're watching it?
7: I think it's a true insight into what our lives are like on a day to day basis, and I think you see the internal competition of bouncing around, of trying to sell each other's properties. Sometimes people working on the same client, rightfully or wrongfully, which the show mm-hmm. definitely does definitely captured very well and yeah. I think it's just how we progress in our careers and like Adam and I in the first two seasons we were brand new to Dubai and never seen anything before the, the lights were on us Jordan's gone through a similar experience and I think it's fair to say on the show you see him you know pitching properties for the first time he does an amazing tour on a property he's never seen before literally chucked in the deep end just as we were as well so it's it's seeing that journey it's seeing how we progress and mature as well so it's it's nice to see it come together
8: it's a camera following you around pretty much like you've got to deal with the stress of being in a commission-only role and that being looked into, so
1: all the time. So what I want to know, I, I'm always intrigued at how these reality TV shows are, are, are filmed because obviously we've got Dubai bling going on as well. Um, I know Chris; he lives, you know, he works down the corridor. I have to say that what I see of Chris on on the TV is, I suppose, it's an exaggerated version of of Chris in in real life. How much of what you do is real, and how much is acted?
7: Everything is real. Really? everything is real everything is captured 100% authentic in terms of the storylines that's says there's nothing that's been you know
8: let's try and Scripted. chuck this storyline in this yeah. let's script this you it's- can't fake anything yeah
1: so they don't throw in a hot blonde to make you all argue over her or something like <laughs> no. they do in, like, Selling Sunset. <laughs> Let's be honest, that's what, that's what that, the well, aim for, of that for is. For us,
7: it's a hot property, and who can get it first, really? It's so just
1: about <clears> the property. <throat> it's all about the property. And, and that,
7: that's what I mean. You see, you see that chase, and you see people going after each other's clients, and then there's tensions that arise from that. And I, I think one of our storylines is we have a deal going on together. It falls through, it comes back, and that's what the real estate market's like. It can be completely, you don't know what you're going to wake up to sometimes if it's changed overnight. And the show perfectly captures that.
1: What is it like uh, on the scene? Because obviously, estate agents are making huge numbers and have been for the last two years as the market literally has soared and keeps on soaring. I mean, this is the thing. We're all waiting for the bubble. I've been here nine years. I I haven't bought yet. I've promised myself that the next time there's a dip, I will. (laughs) And I'm waiting for the dip. I mean, where is it? When's it going to come? We're going to talk about forecasting (laughs) in the next segment of the show. But, you know... Is is there quite a lot of sharky stuff going on out there in the community?
8: I think it's one of the most competitive industries right now. I think, Jake, you said you love it because it's like a sport. It's the closest thing to a sport. Without being a sport, so many agents are coming, relocating to Dubai now, want to become a real estate agent. So it's extremely competitive, but it's what makes it enjoyable.
7: You've not just got the internal competition against each other. You've got multiple different agencies, very experienced brokers that have been in the game for a long time. So... You don't know if someone's going to be knocking on the door of your seller or taking your buyer out on the weekend if you are at a brunch or something like. This is the life we live, and the show again it perfectly captures that. Yeah.
1: So, do you have to go above and beyond in order to sell a, a, a property? You know, is it, it, it's not like the old days where you just stick it up on, <laughs> I don't know, one of the websites, Bio to, or, or DeBizzle? I don't know. I don't even know where people put things up now. Um, uh, do you now have to have a much more sort of personal relationship with your buyers and sellers?
7: yeah I, th- I think it's a good mix to be honest like you can get the crazy success stories like you have one of the properties on the show right where you got a call on sunday night i think it was yeah. next day it was signed yeah no
1: way so, break in price so the seller came to you said i want to put something on the market with one phone call and then the next day you got a buyer
8: to be fair no like i had a very good relationship with that seller but yeah. what jake's saying is i got an inquiry from another agent and they brought a buyer and didn't even view it and we sold the property overnight
1: and i I
7: think that's what sometimes like if you're a buyer in the market you don't see the work that goes behind bringing a property to market sometimes we're speaking to these sellers updating them keeping them informed for six months nine months 12 months before that property even thinks about coming to market so then when it is listed you've then got to try and sell it and then then potentially competing with other agents as well and like jordan having that one phone call he was i think he was waiting to sell that property for Four or five months. Yeah, four or five months. Sold. And then out of the blue, the call comes in, yeah. deal done.
1: So we've got a flat in London at the moment that's just come up for let again. Our tenants decided to move out. And I actually got an email yesterday in the car in the evening from another estate agent. We've had it with the same agent for months. Hmm. How on earth this agent got my email address? I have no idea. But just sort of saying, oh, we've got a, a, a rich, retired, potential tenant who wants to live. I mean, obviously it was a lie and they were trying to snipe the property off me. And that's happening in the London market, which isn't as frothy as, as it is here. Is there quite a lot of sort of, sh- I suppose, underhand, I mean, or competitive tactics going on in this market like that?
8: I think for some agents, yeah. I think if you're true to your word, a good agent, then it's always best to be as honest as possible, obviously. But, you know, there's so many people in this market. Some agents will be going underhand to do things to to better themselves, which is the downside of the market. Yeah, But it's part of the game, unfortunately.
1: What do you make on a property? Is it 5% if you sell it?
8: It varies. It does, oh, it varies, does it vary. Not not up to 5%.
7: Yeah, I'd 2% say.
8: from the buyer, t- typically 2% from the
7: seller as well. And then sometimes you'll have one colleague that got both sides of the deals most of the time it's a split deal so someone has the buyer someone represents the seller sometimes there's another party involved so typically it's two percent each yeah
1: Interesting, a lot of money to be made, though. I mean, you do you get two percent on a hundred million dollar property? Like you're 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 <laughs> set, aren't you? Amazing, that is the dream. That is the dream. Talk, we'll be continuing to talk about the dream in the coming minutes, and I want to get your forecast uh, for how the property market here in the UAE looks for twenty twenty four. But yeah, we are made conversation uh, with two of the stars from the Dubai reality TV show, Dubai Hustle. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda. We are mid-conversation with the stars from the BBC reality show Dubai Hustle. If you haven't seen it, uh, basically the show focuses on a group of estate agents. They're working for House & House, which is one of the biggest estate agents out here. And the third season has just launched. I've got... Jake Matthews Hubbard in the studio with me and Jordan Zakaria. Now, Jake's been in a few times before, but it's the first time I've met Jordan because he's new to the third season. Um, And guys, I mean, while you're like reality TV stars, what you're actually, you know, where you're making the big bucks is, you know, being successful at work, selling houses. And and you really like I got the reassurance from you both that it is real and not acted. You are actually working in property here, aren't you? (laughs)
8: Yeah. yeah yeah okay good just to check because <laughs> i'm about to ask you
1: for a forecast for 2024 so it would it, it needs to sit comfortably and in fact lots of people have been sending in really quite specific messages that we might have to get into first of all adam says um you know what were your best months in terms of commission you know because you so um jordan you've been how long, how long have you been in the market now
8: now just over a year
1: so what was your best month
8: probably last month i'd need to look at the exact. the exact figures, because that was, yeah, that was just like crazy last few months, end of the year. But I don't know, Jake, you've been here two, three years now. You've He's got being some humble. <laughs>
7: is the he? Humble on <laughs> the Don't be radio. humble. <laughs>
8: Mr. 350,000
7: in one month. Like,
1: wow. I mean, that is amazing. And that, that, wow. That's, that,
7: honestly, I I speak to my friends in London. I've just gone back over the holidays. And I say to people like they're struggling with opportunities there. Like yeah. it's it's gloomy sometimes. It's so, always
1: gloomy, it's draining. Jor-
7: Jordan's the perfect success story because from driving a course in London to six months in Dubai, he owns a Porsche. Oh, and now he's, he's equaled my best month as well. My best month's 350,000. He's done it in the space of years. So it's all credit to him and that's what the market offers in terms of opportunity.
1: If you work your bottom off though. Yeah. And apply is yourself. It? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, is it very hard work?
8: No, yeah, you're making me blush, Jake. But <laughs>
1: No,
8: no he, yeah, he's right. Like you and Adam have been great mentors for me obviously when I joined. But those first Four or five months in the job, like,
1: you don't get anything. I've never
8: worked as hard for nothing in my life. I didn't get paid anything.
1: Yeah. Because it's commission only, is it? Commission only, yeah.
7: And and, and credit to him. Jordan came in, he was always asking questions, applying himself. I remember, like, there was one time he was at midnight with a. an investor from the US he's competing against rival agencies he's calling me fuming like smashing it or just smashing your the hoard of your will <laughs> yeah. and he said Jake what do I do the buyers about to pull out I'm fuming I was like call the seller and tell him how you feel you're on his side and that brought the deal back yeah. on the table. Oh, wow it's, it's a real
8: um, emotional roller coaster at times but that's the enjoyable part of it. But yeah, like And I said,
7: that, that's how it's like a sport. You might yeah. be winning the game. All of a sudden, you've conceded a goal in the last minute and you're exactly. now drawing. It's gone exactly. extra time. <laughs>
1: Let's look at the forecast for 2024. I've got two minutes left with you guys. Um, obviously, we've never... I mean, no, we have seen a, a frothier market in the past. It didn't necessarily end well. Or do you think, do you think this is even better than then? Is it going to continue?
7: Yeah, by the recent Property Monitor Index report, which I've discussed on here previously... Yep. We're above the previous peak now. So oh, we're in wow. uncharted territory. But then again, Dubai is stronger than ever, in my opinion. You know, We were just discussing before, highest enrollments at schools, the yep. population's growing. They want to yep. continue to grow the population even further. What drives demand in the market? It is mainly the population. So Dubai is still going strong. We're, I think we're definitely due a period of stabilization. When that's due to come, it's still an unknown. Because as of right now, it's going up by about 1% each month, sometimes 2%. So... Based on our last few days in the office as well, it's activities picking up, everyone's returning to the buyer, so
8: I'd echo that. I think definitely, I think it's gonna be another positive year. I think uh December last year, month just gone, there was a seventy six percent increase in buyer inquiries we had compared to December seventy six. Yeah, seventy six percent compared to December twenty twenty two. So the demand's there and I think that will be reflected this year. And rent's still crazy. Why would you not buy if you can? Yeah.
1: Well, that is, oddly enough, we have mortgage brokers in who say that all the time. You know, why are you giving all your money, hard-earned money, straight to a landlord when you could be making the money yourself? I have to say, this time last year, I was like, well, obviously, I'm not going to buy because the market's about to come down. If I had bought, <laughs> I think filler prices went up, what was it, 37% in the last 12 months or something horrendous?
8: It was 22%. 22%. i am talking then,
1: to two guys You depends know exactly. on the community.
7: Some communities yeah. have gone higher, some a bit lower than that, but yeah. Year.
1: I'd have made in 12 months. My goodness me. Obviously, there would have been fees, huge fees to you guys. Of course.
4: Uh, Of course, course, and everybody
1: else. Um, Talking about um, the the next year, do you think there's going to be another season of the Dubai hustle? I've got another question about that.
7: I think too early to tell for now. We're only two, three days in, but fingers crossed. I think there's definitely been a great reaction the first few days. So we're hoping for it. So As long as people keep watching, tuning in. Fingers crossed.
1: Brilliant. Last question very quickly. Ravesh has written in with a very specific question. He's a resident of Dubai Marina and he wants to know the resale value for three-bedroom apartments in the marina. Does it have high demand? Are there any disadvantages? I'd have to put
8: you in touch with a specialist in that area, but (laughs) I'd say for sure, like apartments in the last few months have seen such an increase in demand for sure. A lot of the deals we're seeing at our company now are apartments. So definitely in high demand.
7: Yeah. And with numerous different towers, they're best to get a specialist, as Jordan said, come out, value the property. We're happy to help and put you in touch with someone, of course. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, we've got some apartments for sale at the moment that are getting 9%, 10% net returns on short term. So as always, Marina, JBR area, other areas of Dubai, they're prime for short term rentals with Taurus.
1: Good stuff, guys. I love having you in. And lots of fantastic energy and the Dubai Hustle is a really, really good program. So Jake Matthews Hubbard, Jordan Zakaria, thank you very much indeed for your time. Have a good go out. Sell stuff, buy more Porsches. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, (laughs) George. See you guys.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Hey there, welcome back to The Agenda. Time now to talk sport. And I am delighted to say I have Mr Robbie Greenfield on the line. Robbie, how are you? Are you well? I'm very well,
9: thank you. Yeah, very good. Thanks, Georgia. How are you?
1: I'm very well indeed. What's going on? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I guess it's a relatively
9: quiet period in the world of sport. First week of January and all that. There is FA Cup action to look forward to this weekend in the world of football. We saw a game last night, 0-0. Uh, not exactly particularly <laughs> exciting from a sporting perspective between Everton and Crystal Palace. But the big headlines being generated from that game revolve around, I'm getting sick of this, to be quite honest, Georgia. VAR, once again, forensic analysis of of individual challenges are really having a very detrimental effect on the game. And and everyone is up in arms about this. Pundits, fans, you name it. Everyone is just simply fed up. Essentially, what happened was the striker for Everton, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, went in on a challenge uh, into the uh, Crystal Palace player, Nathaniel Klein. Now, in the blink of an eye, in real time, it's completely innocuous. Dominic Calvert-Lewin seems to win the ball. There's minimal contact and away we go. We play on. There's no injury. There's, there's nothing to see here. Move on. But of course, when VAR get involved, they slow everything down. We're watching one one thousandth of a frame per, sec- per second. And when you slow it down to that extent and you start to really look at it in the minutiae, the fine detail and the super slow motion, Dominic Calvert-Lewin's studs were up, which is an illegal challenge, and there is minimal contact on the player, even though it's kind of ball player all at one time, if that makes sense in terms of the challenge. And the referee was called over to the monitor. He had a look at it. He ruminated over it. The game got stopped. Of course, everyone's waiting. The end result, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, is shown a straight red card. And, And people are just completely fed up with this because the rules of football have simply not caught up to the technology that's being employed. I was talking about this last night on the show with uh, with Mark Archer, who's back in with us this evening from 7pm. And, and this is the major problem with football. They've brought in technology to, to officiate the game. That's fine. No issues with that. We, we get more accuracy. You know, we can see in a lot more clear detail what's happened. We get the benefit of hindsight as well. But they haven't adjusted or, or, or changed the laws to now suit this this extremely pervasive technology, which is now being used to to moderate the game, and and it's just it's ma- it's making for a stagnant spectacle. It's making for a spectacle where the fans are just left frustrated. You can't celebrate goals because one might get disallowed. It might get pulled back. The spontaneity has been sucked out of the game, and and that was one of football's great strengths. And the likes of Jeff Stelling, you know, the famous uh, the, the the guy that presents or used to present, I should say. Uh, soccer Saturday. Yeah. He says, does anybody honestly believe the game is better for VAR? Makes you weep how the governing bodies are destroying our beautiful game. Everyone from the likes of former boxer, Tony Bellew, to uh, former Spurs midfielder, Jamie O'Hara, all of the big wigs on social media, all chiming in to say that this is an absolute load of nonsense. And, and I'm inclined to agree, to be quite honest with you, but uh, you know, it's here to stay. The horse has bolted, unfortunately. Do you, Do you
1: think it is? Do you think it is here
9: I mean, to stay? The, the, the governing bodies have committed so much money and time and investment into it that it's just we've gone far too far down the road to, to run it back now. It's, it's, uh, it's all about trying to, to work with what we've got and getting it right, I think. And I think there's still a, a balance to be struck and, and we're a long way away from, from striking that balance. But I guess on the upside, there are more accurate decisions being made on the pitch in light of VAR's introduction because... When the, re- when the games were refereed from a, a perspective of just the ref making a, a, a decision that he sees in the blink of an eye mm. in real time, of course, you're going to miss an awful lot. Mm. Uh, and that's just, that, that's natural, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not something we want to be talking about. I'm thoroughly sick of it. I think most people who like football are totally sick of discussing it. But it, it keeps rearing its ugly head, Georgia, time and time again. So we have to then rake it all up again.
1: So with a bit of a sort of blip in the sporting calendar, let's use this opportunity to look ahead to to what's to come in the sort of coming couple of months right here yeah. in the UAE because there is so much already on its way. I mean, starting with take that appearing at a sailing event <laughs> next weekend. <laughs>
9: I mean, who knew? That, who that's, knew? That's, that's a partnership you never thought you'd see happen, right? Literally, never. Uh, yeah, Sale GP, uh, making moves in recruiting the likes of Gary Barlow to <laughs> to add to a little bit of star power to their event. And why not? I yeah. mean, I'm all for that. Yeah. I know Chris is a massive fan of take that. He commissioned Rods to do an entire feature on the <laughs> uh, the 1990s crooners which uh, luckily I wasn't there for. I was on paternity leave, Georgia, so I I managed to miss that. Small mercies. Looking forward to seeing them um, here in the UAE. Sale GP returns, you know, that that continues to grow. We've got golf coming up. We've got the Dubai Invitational, which is a brand new event at the Dubai Creek Golf and Yacht Club, which is really a celebrity pro-am golf type event. I don't know whether you're familiar with a couple of the ones. They have one in the US over at Pebble Beach. They have one in Scotland as well. Really good fun. The players enjoy it. And it's a chance for the celebrities to show us all how terrible they are at golf as well. So um, it's good fun. Looking forward to that. Rory McIlroy's headlining that one. That one gets underway next week. And then the Hero Dubai Desert Classic, one of my personal favorites, the oldest event in the region from a golfing perspective, 35th edition. That one straight off the back of the Dubai Creek event, back-to-back weeks of golf right here in Dubai, What's not to love about that, Georgia?
1: Very little not to love. I've already got my free tickets books for for that one. Uh, So my husband will be very, very pleased. Well, plenty to look forward to, Robbie. Much appreciated uh, that you joined us early on the show today. Of course, you will be back from 5pm for your drive time show. It is off script. Uh, You get Robbie, Sonal and Chris all in one place at the same time. And then you get extra sport from about seven o'clock. So lots to look forward to. But Robbie, a huge thanks to you. Have a good afternoon. Uh, And hopefully we will... From either you or Chris on Monday. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m.